Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're focusing on what college students and other youth are doing to advance a transition toward a clean and prosperous economy. 2011 was a year of climate extremes around the world. Biblical floods afflicted some regions, while others, such as the American Southwest, experienced epic drought. Global temperatures for the last decade are tied for the hottest on record. For years, scientists have been warning that this kind of weird weather—too much water, too little water, hot spells, cold spells—all mixed together would result from the accumulation of carbon pollution in the atmosphere. That's happening now. With Mother Nature screaming at us, Republicans and Democrats are running for cover. National and international efforts to move toward clean energy and away from fossil fuels are limping along. Baby boomers are refusing to clean up their mess. And now the kids are starting to call them out. Over the next hour, we'll discuss what America's youth are doing to protect their resources for the future. At the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we have a live audience today, including school children and their families from around the San Francisco Bay Area. And on stage, we are pleased to welcome three college advocates. Abigail Bora, in the middle, is a student at Middlebury College in Vermont and an advocate with Sustainus.org. Tanya Pulido, here on my right, is a Green for All Fellow, a Brower Youth Award winner, and a student at Contra Costa College here in the Bay Area. And Adarsha Shivakumar is a Stanford student, a litigation uh, plaintiff, and at some uh, claims against the state of California, and also a winner of the prestigious Brower Youth Award. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you uh, all for coming. I want to hear a little bit about about your your uh, your stories and kind of a thumbnail of kind of what got you to this point. And let's uh, begin with you, Tanya. Um, a few years ago, you were on not such a good track at, at uh, going to high school in Richmond. And how did you get involved in environmentalism and, and sort of get on a different track? Well, my involvement with environmental activism and community activism overall stemmed from my personal problems. I was going through an identity crisis. I was the economic um, crisis left me and my family unemployed, and we were about to lose our home. And um, you know, just a really bad relationships and friendships. And it, I basically hit rock bottom, and it made me question my future. And as I asked more, I, at first I asked personal questions, and then that led to me asking community questions. And it was one question in particular that really led me to um, ask broader questions, which was, you know, I accepted that I um, didn't do very well in high school and that I wasn't doing really well in in life. I didn't have a job, wasn't doing really good at Contra Costa, but I asked myself, but why is it that so many people in my community are facing the same problems? And that led me to ask even more questions, and I started seeking for, uh, um, to, for answers, and I started watching the news and documentaries, and I learned more and more about um, 
the injustices that were happening in my community. And I started with the Richmond Refinery, and then that led me to do environmental work. And now I'm doing urban agriculture, community urban agriculture. So you decided, came from within the side, you, you started watching, which documentary? Was there anyone in particular that kind of uh, awakened you? I started watching documentaries about oil, and that really awakened me because it was very personal to my life. Um, attending Richmond High, our mascot is an oil funnel, and my, I we should clarify that right. Richmond is a community that has a large oil refi- refinery. Yeah, it has the the single largest greenhouse emitter in California. It refines about 250,000 barrels of oil a day, and you know. I didn't really know very specific information. All I know that my mascot was an oil funnel and that at the age of 18, I was going to receive money from the refinery due to an explosion, which I was super excited about. But I didn't realize the magnitude of and the influence it had in my community and, and, local, and um, statewide and then globally. So I started watching, like, um, documentaries about oil and then learning more about the Chevron refinery, which could, which then I connected to a lot of other uh, movements and issues that were happening as well. Darsha Shivakumar, let's let's turn to, to your story. Uh, tough act to follow, yeah? Um, uh, yeah. When did you get involved in environmental issues and how did that get to you where you are today? Um, my story definitely is not as cool, so just start to disappoint everyone preemptively. But, um, I guess I started when I was really young. I think when I was like eight or nine, I um, I just read, and I had a very, very like you know, this is like an eight or nine year old perspective. So like it may seem very simple with a lot of adults, but like back then when I was a kid, this was, these were some like pretty enormous revelations to me. I was like, whoa! But um, what happened is when I was a kid, I like read CNN and like I read the news. Okay, that's really weird now that I say that, but um. I read them and I very quickly developed an idea, the sense that, you know, since humanity is, you know, part of the biosphere, then we need to take care of that biosphere because we are intricately connected whether we want to or, like, whether we want to be or not to it. Therefore, if we hurt the biosphere, most likely it's going to hurt us in the long run and in the short run. So I felt like even from a young age, we have a vested interest in protecting the earth, like, and protecting nature. I just didn't know at the time what it meant. Um... This manifested later on when I started an international nonprofit, like when I was 13, although it wasn't originally an international nonprofit. Um, I started this international nonprofit, and what we did basically was um, we planted a biofuel shrub called Jotropha curcus in rural South India, and what we did there is try to use that as a source of sustainable biofuel in the area to not only, you know, be a source of sustainable biofuel, but also to help lift rural farmers out of poverty. And um, well, that had mixed results. What we are now currently doing is focusing on um, environmental education and massive tree planting in Haiti, in India, and in the Oakland Hayward area here. And um, that has led me to a lot of places, including right here, right now, actually. So that's my story in a very condensed nutshell. Uh, you also joined a suit uh, against the state of California. So how did you get involved in suing the largest, most powerful state in the country? Well, largest and most powerful. I like that, you know. Go California. I mean, I still, I still love my state, let it be said. I think we're the best state. But, um, uh, well, California, um, for those of you who don't know, uh, water is what is considered to be a public trust. The basic... There's a lot of legal terms associated with that, but the basic principle is that um, companies can't like dump toxic, you know, waste and like in the water because since the water is you know used by everybody on some level, um, it would harm everybody. Therefore, you know, everyone actually owns this. It's, in a sense, everyone owns the water and no one owns the water. But that means either way, you can't dump stuff into it. What we were trying to do was lobby for the atmosphere to be classified as a public trust as well, which means that. Um, you can't pollute the atmosphere. Well, you have, there are strict, very strict limits on what you can and cannot dump into the atmosphere. And one of the things this would regulate would be carbon dioxide emissions along with other greenhouse gas emissions, such as methane, for example. And um, what we were trying to do, basically, is the legal implications of this, though, are pretty big because that means California would probably have to crack down on a lot of, like, I mean, there's a lot of companies dumping large amounts of greenhouse gases and other, you know, toxic gases like sulfur dioxide, for example, which has other negative ramifications on the atmosphere. And, um, uh, recent, well, I mean, this was a very, very big legal endeavor. 
and very similar activities, such as like you know other states were or other environmental groups and other states were also lobbying to have um, the atmosphere considered as a public trust. In fact, we were trying to we were also doing this not just on the state level but on the federal level as well. And um, although we dropped the case for the time being, it was still like a landmark endeavor. Not only because you know we are trying to get the atmosphere lobby to be a public trust, but also because for the first time in well ever really. Um, the youth was a massive, massive driving factor behind us. I mean, normally we have like, oh, oh, okay, you know, not old people, older people, you know, doing this kind of thing. Yeah, I know. I, I realize I'm a, a, a comparative youngin, but um, usually it's a, uh, okay, but um, usually we have like, you know, um, uh, the youth is, in this case, the youth was really, really like a motivating factor, and we were trying to like lobby that as a fact, like, you know, hey, look, we're the ones that, um, are really being impacted by climate change and, you know, environmental degradation as a whole. So we really should be speaking out and, like, pushing. And now I think it's, like, the government, even on the federal, even on the state level, was kind of surprised because they're like, oh, yeah, these are also going to be our main voting constituents very, very short in the future. So they really have to, like, you know, start noticing us because then we can just vote them out of office and do our own thing. But it's really a landmark endeavor in a lot of ways. That nutshell got a lot bigger, I know, but okay. <laughs> We had a uh, former congressman, Pete McCloskey, who's a co-author of the Endangered Species Act, who's here. I think that he's part of that. He said yep. it's really going to be the, uh, the young people who will force the people in power to, uh, to make some changes. Abigail Bora, let's talk about your story. You grew up on a dairy farm run by nuns and then ended up in <laughs> Durban. Uh, connect those dots for us briefly. Yeah, sure. So um, when I was growing up, every summer I spent um, on a farm outside of Poughkeepsie, New York. Um, milking cows, taking the chickens, eggs in the morning, um, gardening. And so when I decided to, you know, trying to figure out where I was going to college, I fell in love with Vermont, um, and I landed at Middlebury. Um, and my first semester at Middlebury was uh, the semester leading up to Copenhagen um, and COP15, uh, the international conference, to try to figure out um, how globally we can deal with the climate change issue. Um, and so watching my friends go to Copenhagen and come back sort of disillusioned by this uh, conference, um, I knew that I had to continue that energy and youth involvement um, in the international negotiations. So I spent um, a fair amount of time that year working on Vermont energy politics, um, and then I was in, Copenhagen, in Mexico and then in South Africa um, working with the international youth delegation. And we're going to show a brief uh, video of Abigail Bora in, uh, in Durban. This is the Global United Nations Conference, uh, and the scene here is uh, the lead U.S. negotiator, Todd Stern, is talking, and this is Abigail. Let's, let's roll that, Joe. You have three minutes. Thank you. Nobody you is must listening pledge to ambitious targets to lower emissions, not expectations. 2020 is too late to wait. <laughs> what is your name? What is your name? Abigail Bora. From which group? The United States Youth. Why did you just interrupt this forum? <laughs> the United States government does not speak on my behalf. Excuse me. <laughs> Abigail Bora in the United States. <laughs> So give us the backstory there. How did that come about? What prompted you to stand up and disrupt the international negotiations? Sure. So this was um, the second to last day of the negotiations. Um, and about 20 young people from the U.S. had been at the negotiations. And sort of for the, the two weeks that we were there, we kept on having to answer for our country. Um, and we were talking to young people from across the world who were saying, why isn't the U.S. Um, taking more of a position of leadership on this issue? Um, and we were equally as frustrated in watching our country um, not have the necessary urgency or ambition that they needed to bring to these negotiations. Um, and that being said, there wasn't really that much pressure being put on the U.S. from the media, from civil society, from other governments. Um, the U.S. was really just sitting sort of as the elephant in the room. Um, and so as young people, we felt that we had to call our country out um, and make sure people knew that we didn't think um, 
the government was speaking on our behalf and that we were really trying to push for more urgency and ambition. And what's been the response since that time? Uh, people come up to you, et cetera. What's been the response afterwards of that, of that event? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. You saw in the video, um, the moderator says, no one is listening to you. Um, and I didn't hear him when he said that, so I guess that was good. I kept on speaking. Um, but I think the response was that people were listening and that when young people speak up, people do listen. Um, and so we don't have to be you know, told. I think constantly young people are being told we need to wait until we're older to have an influence um, and that we shouldn't speak now. You know, we, we have to get degrees. We have to um, you know, see the world and then we'll understand. Um, but I think it shows that as, you know, as we can all probably attest, is that when we do speak up, when we do act, people are listening, people are watching, and it makes an influence. Uh, and your point about the U.S. not being a leadership, uh, this weekend the Washington Post wrote an editorial in which it said the U.S. was delinquent in leading the world on energy. So that's a, a sentiment that resonates in the sort of the establishment, the Washington Post editorial page, echoing those concerns this last weekend. Uh, let's talk about food, because food is an issue that you've all been involved in and something everyone can relate to and it's something that, that youth can connect with. So, Tanya, let's talk first with you about how you kind of uh, grabbed onto food as a, as a way to connect the environment with your own personal life and those around you. Yeah. When I started uh, community activism, I started with the refinery and I was doing advocacy and I soon found out that not many people were interested in that issue because there was there were other pressing issues in their life, such as poverty and drug abuse and violence. And so I then realized that I had to find something that, you know, everyone had in common and that regardless of the race, economic status, uh, we can all come together in this, ta- in this in this issue and work together and that was one of the ways I got involved with food uh, because on the Richmond Greenway, uh, which is where I work, we have garden beds. And what makes it really unique is that it doesn't have any fences so people can come and join whenever they want. And that's really what I was aiming for. I wanted to create a common space where people can come and join regardless of whatever they were dealing with or their economic status. And that's where really uh, I started getting more involved with food. So this that. is a garden with no fences, so can people come steal the food? Yes, they're more than welcome <laughs> to steal yeah. it. That's the purpose, yeah, for them to come steal the food. And you also got involved in food in, in your school, which is, I think, a, another place where a lot of youth get a, have, get connected with. The, the, the food in your school wasn't so good, and, and is that something that you got involved with as well? Yeah. Is that something you want to get involved That's with? That's something con- I contra- want cons- You want Contra Costa College to have organic uh, uh, food at their all, all public schools, I believe, should have uh, a local farm that they are um, getting the food from, especially because educational institutions, you know, basically show students, you know, the principles, the philosophy of life and how we should be. And I think that public schools should lead by example. And the fact that, you know, schools, a lot of uh, public school lunches are really unhealthy and they serve pizza most of the time or hamburgers, I think it's unacceptable and needs to be changed. Um, And that's an issue I want to work on in the future. Adarsha, let's hear your connection to food. I know you've worked a little bit on the obesity issue and others. Yeah, talk about food as a connecting point for youth. Yeah, actually, originally, I didn't really have much of a background with food at all, but um, one of the organizations I work with is the Ashoka Youth Venture, and um, what they do is a social entrepreneurial work, and one of their big focuses is um, food justice. And coming in, I had no idea. I mean, I, got, I guess I got from the name food justice that I had to do something with food and justice. But um, uh, beyond that, I learned very quickly that food is really a really uniting factor. I mean, when, when people say that, oh, well, you know, what's an issue, um, like Tony said, what's an issue that connects people regardless of, you know, uh, race or gender or economic status, food is really the connecting factor because by giving people like uh, access to healthy, like affordable food and regardless of where they live, regardless of, you know, what their status, the ex- economic status is, you really like solve a lot of other problems at the same time. You can solve poverty, you can solve, you know, um, the drug issues in the area, you can really also foster a sense of community that's absolutely critical to, well, I mean, making their lives better, which is really what it's all about. I mean, we're trying to make people's lives better. And food just seems to be, like, not only one of the easiest, but one of the 
best ways to go about doing so because it's something that especially the youth can really get involved in because you don't need to have a degree to do these sort of things. You don't need to have like, you know, years of experience. You just need to like want to have like, you know, healthy food accessible, which is something that I think a lot of people share. And thus I got um, really involved with groups that are like currently pursuing food justice, especially in the Oakland area. And um, it's really been encouraging to see so many youth, like, who have gone through so many personal hardships that, like, I can't even begin to describe, to be honest. And despite all that, they're like, yeah, we're still committed to the idea of food justice and having healthy food accessible to everyone. And I think that really resonates with me as an example of, look, this is something that I think everyone should focus on. So is it the idea that somehow organic food is only for those people who it shouldn't be only for those people who can afford to go to whole paycheck that sort of thing um exactly. abigail Bohr, let's get your connection on, on the food as an issue yeah so as you said i i grew up working on a farm on a dairy farm um and i think for me that helped launch me into working on the youth climate movement um because it instilled a lot of values um i suddenly was responsible for this the task of collecting eggs or i was responsible for a certain part of the garden um, and those ideas of responsibility and ownership, I think, are really important for young people um, because a lot of things we don't feel ownership over. Um, and so the idea that I could participate in something and see real tangible changes, that if I didn't water or if I didn't weed, then it would affect the you know, success of the crop. Um, and so then bringing those values into something like, you know, being a part of the political process is when we're engaged in, you know, making, in making food and growing food, I think we can show how those connect to being engaged in other decisions. And there's another aspect here, which recently has been a lot of awareness how what people eat may be a bigger contributor to their carbon footprint than what they drive, all the fossil fuels that go into food production. Uh, it's a real big part of any individual's uh, personal carbon footprint. Another aspect here related to food is, is green jobs and the idea that there's a lot of jobs in these er- in, in these new technologies in these areas and it's something that can't be exported. So that must be something that's probably a concern in Richmond, yeah? Yeah, definitely. We have a really high unemployment rate. And one of the things, one of for Urban Tills, one of our sayings is, you know, we just don't grow food, we grow people because we're seeing urban agriculture as a tool to educate people on, like, bigger issues. So we recognize that we need to change a culture that has, you know, been, that um, creates, like, violent cycles and abusive cycles. So we're trying to change that and use urban agriculture as a, as a, uh, a hub almost where people can come together and talk about these larger issues, but, you know, share this intimate experience of eating food together. As Michael Pollan says, you uh, get to vote with your fork three times a day, so it's an area where people can have an impact. Exactly. Um, and you don't have to be 18 to, I mean, to, uh, to do that. Nope. But let's talk ab- about voting. I mean, is that a meaningful expression? Do you think that voting matters? Or s- some people think that, well, voting doesn't matter. They don't bother to vote. Young people don't vote. Do you guys vote every election? Yeah. I just turned yeah, 18. <laughs> okay. So you're about to vote for the first time? Yep. Okay. Do you think that your vote's going to have a significant impact? Um, yeah, to be perfectly honest. I mean, uh, 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 or no, okay, to be okay, I guess my individual vote probably doesn't, like, count. But the thing is, if the idea is that if, if like, a hundred thousand or a million young people say my individual vote doesn't matter, then clearly something's wrong. I mean, I don't really need to explain why that statement is wrong. If a million young people don't believe, or, like, how many other people don't vote, right? Each individual vote matters, because if everyone has the idea that, well, you know, my vote doesn't matter, then, like, nothing happens. The people, like, you know, we can complain about, you know, the people that we don't want are in power, right? Or the laws that we don't like are getting passed. If all the people who genuinely didn't like those laws or didn't like those politicians actually went out and voted for the people they wanted or the laws that they wanted... I'm pretty sure that we could, you know, get those, uh, that, that change, like, that change would happen. Because our politicians, despite, you know, our, like, despite the fact that a lot of them are bought out by corporations and the like, they're still accountable to us in a lot of ways. And they're going to do, like, they're going to still, like, want to be reelected. So we can, people say, you know, oh, one vote doesn't really make a difference, or your vote doesn't make a difference. That's a pretty big lie. And anyone who says that, I completely disagree with them. And if everyone really honestly voted and cared and... Thinks, if you generally think your vote matters, 
then it does because you can like get people motivated to you know vote and get that change across and it's the only way that you know a lot of us have that kind of power because a lot of us aren't rich enough to you know buy out politicians ooh i said it ooh but um a lot of us aren't you know well or a lot of us don't have um the desire or the ability to you know go and like run for office or run for like you know really important positions and things like that but we can vote with our vote okay that's kind of redundant but yeah that's what i believe <laughs> Adarsha Shivakumar is a student at Stanford University. Our other guests today at Climate One are Tanya Pulido, who's a student at Contra Costa College, and Abigail Bora, a student at Middlebury College in Vermont. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, I'd like to get here, Abigail and Tanya, talk about your vote, whether your peers think that voting matters. Is that really an avenue for change? Yeah, I mean, in Vermont, um, we had a decision by the Vermont House um, to close down our nuclear plant, um, which was providing about a third of our energy. And... Um, some of my friends and I, we were thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could replace that energy with clean and renewable technologies? And so during the governor's election, we spent about um, almost the entire year uh, trying to get young people mobilized around voting for the governor and to have a governor that would come in and say, yeah, I want to I replace the nuclear plant with wind, with solar, with microhydro, with biomass. Um, and we registered thousands of young people. Um, to vote. And we had to do it with different ways because it was the summer and because students weren't in school and voting in a midterm election is really not that exciting. Um, so we went to the top of Mount Mansfield, the highest peak in Vermont, and registered voters who are hiking up the mountain. Um, we got a tricycle and we had a registration inspiration station. Um, and we started, you know, riding around Church Street in Burlington, riding all around the state, um, registering young people to vote that way. And so we have to, you know, do, we have to employ creative means to get people um, engaged. But I definitely think voting matters. And, um, you know, the results of the election showed that young people did come out um, and started voicing their opinions. And was there a shift away from nuclear to the clean energy, or is that still in progress? Yeah, it's still in progress right now. Um, But we had a governor who came in and made a strong statement saying that he was committed to shutting down Vermont Yankee. Tanya, in your community, do, do people think that their vote matters? Is that sort of, you know, do they think the system can work for them if they mm-hmm. um, engage that way? I mean, there's definitely people who believe it, their vote doesn't matter. And, but I have worked with a group of people who who do see how their vote matters. And locally, we have created a lot of change through policy, which, you know, proved me that my vote really does matter because um, for a while, I was kind of skeptical about voting because I was like, oh, it's not, it's not going to re- really count or anything. But after being in the process, I realized like how um, powerful that is when people unite and vote for one thing. Um, and you made a video, an award-winning video, that was uh, connected with Proposition 23 in California a couple years ago, which was an uh, initiative to basically suspend California's main climate change law. It was backed by a couple of Texas oil companies. Uh, was, was that impactful? Definitely. Uh, yeah, it was. I got a, a crew of people. It was like me and four other people. Uh, most of them were younger than me. And we went around basically and let people know about it and then asked them if we can uh, videotape their response. And for a lot of people, they didn't know. And all the people, most of the people who we interviewed were um, people in high school, high school students. And it was like really interesting, even the personal connection, like us talking to them about it, because some of them got even frustrated and mad because they didn't know, you know. So it was kind of like it it was a a learning experience for us and the people who we interviewed. So it was very. There's a lot of talk about young people these days don't read newspapers. So I'd like to know where you get your news and information and what sources do you trust? I usually watch democracynow.org. I usually watch Democracy Now. But I like I look at different sites just to see, you know, what they have, like New York Times, CNN, C-SPAN. I just browse around um, just to see different perspectives. Abigail, where do you get your news? What kind of news do you trust? Yeah, I think it's interesting because especially, um, you know, as a college student, we're inundated with information from our teachers and our friends, but also as soon as you go on the Internet, um, Facebook and Twitter, everything is almost overwhelming. Um, and so I've found that I, I learn best through conversation um, and that I can read articles and that I can read op-eds and all these things, but um, I formulate my ideas best when I'm talking with other people. Like we're doing here today, you're perfect for Climate One. Perfect, yeah. Adarsha? Um, 
I like out of the websites that I go to, I think that it's absolutely critical to you know get a really broad spectrum of websites because every site, no matter how perfect, has its biases because editors and reporters are, after all, only human. And um, I get like I read CNN, I read Fox News, I read uh, BBC, Al Jazeera News, and um, I think the most important thing to take away from all those sites is no matter what you read, like take everything, like no matter even if you like really like a particular site, like with a, like a, a hefty size grain of salt, and just like try to like get the story beyond the story, you know, like try to see like you know past like all the like the hyperbole and the emotional like you know what they try to stir up in you try to see well this is what happened like the actual fact of what happened and then you can decide for yourself based on your own your own values etc etc how you feel about that and don't let like you know the media tell you what how you're supposed to feel i think that's like the biggest issue with the media today arguably and therefore that's why news is such like i think a controversial thing because people say oh you know all the news is biased well you know it's all about you determining whether or not it's really biased in a sense. If that made any sense at all, I hope it did. Are you more likely to trust something that a friend posts on Facebook or someone says stumbled upon or floats up on these sorts of things that where, you know, say, oh, my friend thought this was a good article, so therefore it must be? Does that... Yeah, I mean, I think I'm more likely to read it if a friend has suggested it. Um, And I think that's one of the values of social media right now is that we're able to share things pretty quickly. Um, but we have to be wary, again, of... Your friend could have got duped, or yeah, mm-hmm. just because your friend read it doesn't mean it's a good thing. So let's talk about social media and the work you do. Uh, that's something that you probably barely remember uh, the world before Facebook, right? Uh, there was a world before Facebook? Yeah. It was antiquated, and yes. Um, so let's talk about social media and the work and information that you're doing, particularly you know, internationally and in your communities. So Tanya, is that a big part of what you do in Richmond? Not as much, but it's still I'm still active. Uh, I did videos for a while on social justice issues and journalism. And I still do journalism for Richmond Pulse, which is a youth-led newspaper in Richmond. And, you know, I've covered stories from, you know, art to social issues. And I really enjoy it. It makes, it challenges me to go out and talk to people and, um, Interview certain people I probably wouldn't talk to if it wasn't for the article. Abigail, social media, big thing, connecting. You've been working internationally. That must be a big deal to connect youth internationally. Social yeah, media. and I think it's been great, especially for the climate movement. I think we've seen um, we're able to connect with each other pretty quickly um, and on a huge scale, which is amazing. Um, I think something that's a challenge, though, is how we connect with people who aren't already plugged in. Um, doesn't so, reach beyond the choir. Exactly. We can make a video or we can post things, um, and people can like our page or they can vote online, um, but how do we get engagement that's beyond the laptop? Um, and I think for some of that, it's, it's going out into communities, and it can't just be this virtual world that we've created um, and call that activism. I think it needs to engage people on a more personal level. We're talking about uh, youth activism at Climate One. Our guests today are Abigail Bora, a student at Middlebury College. Tanya Pulido is a student at Contra Costa College. And Adarsha Shivakumar is a student at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, do you, any of you own a car? Mm-hmm. I do. Adarsha, you don't own a car. Do you aspire to own a car like most teenage guys just want? <laughs> oh, that, 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 that's a different thing, though. Yeah, I mean, like, I currently drive, like, when I need to, I drive my mom's car. But um, I guess ultimately I want to um, like get a car, but at the same time I'm not in like a major rush, mainly because I'm in college and Stanford is not very car friendly. So um, I mean, deliberately so. Is there car shares that you can use there? You can rent. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, and I, if I get a car, like I mean, I, I I want it to be one that is not a you know a gas guzzling behemoth, mainly because I don't need one, and also B gas prices are really high, and C for the environmental reasons. But um. I think that a lot of our generation is actually more inclined to lean towards the more environmentally friendly cars because already my gen- like my generation, our walls are kind of pinched right now and um, spending a lot of money on gas is not exactly something we want to be doing, especially when you're in college, when you already have like other financial things to deal with. So there's, I think, a natural tendency to shift towards the greener technologies just because of that re- like I mean financial reasons are just as good a reason as any to like you know use green technologies I feel and that's why I, I, I'm not going to get a car unless I like, really need one probably post college 
And there's this move toward collaborative consumption, which is a fancy name for the idea of sharing Carpool, things. Yeah. Uh, car share, zip car, that sort of thing. You don't have to own a car to use it when you when you want it, and you don't have to pay for it when you, when you don't want it. But um, you both own cars. What kind of cars are they? Mine's a is a truck, and I use it for work. Uh-huh. Uh, so you know, sometimes I wish I didn't have a car because of like insurance and gas and everything. But it definitely comes in handy when you work in a garden. Abigail? Yeah, I mean, I live in rural Vermont, um, and getting to and from school and to and from different places is definitely a challenge um, with the state lacking some basic transportation. So Our whole country is built around the need for, for having a car. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about who you respect in the environmental movement. Who are some people that you really look up to that inspire you today? Uh, Tanya? <laughs> For me, it would be my executive director, um, Doria Robinson, because she is committed to working at a grassroots level, and I really respect that. Like, she wants people to be on the streets and talking to people one-on-one, and she's all about local, like hiring local, um, growing your food local, strong local economy. And, you know, for when I barely started working with her, I wanted to go to Africa and go to Mexico and go to all these different places to help the world, you know. And she kind of grounded my roots and, like, really made my roots strong where I was at. And she made me understand that you don't have to travel to, to help the world and you can actually make a stronger impact when you stay in your community because you already know a network of people. And um, so she really inspired me, and that's why I feel like I'm where I'm at today um, in really um, looking at a local economy as, like, a, solu- a strong solution for the future. Abigail? I would have to say it's not one particular person. I'm really inspired by the young people I work with. Um, and I, I would probably say without the energy and excitement and the enthusiasm and sort of, like, relentless optimism of the young people I work with, um, working in the international climate movement is incredibly difficult because I feel like every time we have a great statement we come up with, um, we're not sure that it's being heard. And we come to conferences and, you know, fundraise, we, we write policy statements, we write media statements, and we're constantly working towards something that we're not sure if it's going to work out or not. Um, and we're always bringing humor and enthusiasm and... Um, I think I wouldn't be able to continue the work if it wasn't for that type of spirit. And is this, you're talking about Sustain Us? You might say a little bit about what Sustain Us is. Yeah, sure. So I work with an organization called Sustain Us. Um, It's a U.S.-based organization run entirely by youth. Um, And so it's definitely that type of energy in Sustain Us as well as the entire youth climate movement. Darsha, mentors inspire inspirational people? Um, I'm definitely going to echo um, Abigail here. And I don't really, I think it, it's a disservice personally for me like to say that there's any one person or like even group of people. I'd go with um, really everyone, uh, I mean almost everyone in the sustainability, climate change, environmental movement because um, through like my work I've met like a lot of people and uh, I'll get like emails from uh, people who know very little English from like places like Ghana, um, uh, Tanzania, other places like that and they'll be asking um, hey, can you like uh, like help like and it's like very, they're clearly putting a lot of effort in and um, they're like hey, can you please help with uh, this idea that I have and at first I was really unsure of how to respond because I'm not sure enough they're like trying to like get a cut a deal or something but like it, like I like, give my advice and they we like get in conversations and to see like people like across the world and wherever like youth um, people who are older than me it doesn't really matter like people who are genuinely willing to gen. Yeah genuinely willing to, like, you know, really put everything out there and, like, no matter what their situation, like, try to make their community, their lives, and their, like, whether they know or not, the world a better place, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the cost, that's, like, incredibly inspirational to me because no matter how many obstacles they face, they just will not quit, no matter what. Like, you know, you could, like, throw a, you could, like, put ten brick walls and these guys will either, like, A, climb over it, B, break through, or C, like, you know, make the bricks into, I don't know, like, a house for, like, ten people or something. And it's just so inspirational to see, like, people that dedicated and that committed. It sounds cheesy. It sounds cliche. But, like, it's true nonetheless. 
One of the issues that's been in, in the news a lot lately is the Keystone XL pipeline. It's been a big uh, lightning rod for environmentalists. Uh, President Obama recently announced he wants to expedite approval of half of it, that part which is already within the United States, uh, holding up the part that crosses the border from Canada. So what has that meant to each of you? Is that a, something you relate to? It's a pipeline that goes through the middle of uh, the country, doesn't really touch California or Vermont. Is this relevant to, to in to you and the people you're working with? Tanya? <laughs> yeah, definitely. It is very relevant because this is part of like a, a bigger movement of trying to get dirty oil into um, communities because Tarzan is one of the dirtiest oil you can um, extract and enrichment. Actually, the refinery wants to expand the refinery in order to refine um, Tarzan's. Heavy oil, crude. Uh-huh. Heavier crude, and I feel like it's a, we're part of that movement of trying to stop, you know, dirtier oil to coming into communities and creating even more health impacts and environmental impacts. But the, to be clear, the tar sand oil would go to Texas. It wouldn't necessarily come to California, but other kinds of heavy crude yeah, could come ca- to California. Can, they wanted to bring from Canada to California, so just Tarzans in general. Um, Adarsha, how is the Keystone XL relevant to what you're doing? Um, I like. I mean, again, since I'm California, right? Like, we're not getting a lot of direct impacts, but it's more about the principle. Like, Keystone XL, like, it's despite. Uh, I mean, it's also about like how the oil companies are lying pretty blatantly. Um, the official reports indicate that not that many jobs would be made by this. Um, it's not gonna like have a major impact on our gas prices. It's gonna cause like. I mean, the oil companies' records. Not really convincing and like, hey, guys, we're going to be clean and environmentally friendly. No, not really. And it's the, the matter of the principle is that, you know, on these kind of matters, we can't just like say, oh, well, you know, it's okay because it's not really, it's not affecting us directly. We have to like kind of draw a line and be like, well, no, you can't do that. Just no. End of the story. And in that case, it, although it may not affect me directly, like, it, it, we, if we say yes, that's okay, when clearly it's a overall negative effect on the country, on climate, then we're just like, in, like giving oil companies and other you know, large companies a free right to do whatever the hell they really want. And then we can't say, oh, well, you know, well, it just becomes harder and harder to stop them. And, you know, they have a massive lobbying industry. So if we can stop them here, that really bolsters our chances for, you know, fighting them off in the future. Abigail Bora? Yeah, I mean, I think for me it's an issue of how um, politicians are representing our interests. Um, and so when we see a majority of Americans oppose the pipeline or three-fourths of Americans want our country to invest in renewable technologies and our politicians are going against that and siding with big oil, uh, gas, coal, um, I think we need to hold them accountable. And so the, the climate movement has definitely been you know, fighting the battle from the get-go. Um, in terms of trying to stop this pipeline, and we'll continue to do so. Um, but I think it's just another example of how, as you were saying, uh, corporate dollars are influencing our politicians. Abigail Bora is a student at Middlebury College. We're discussing climate change at uh, Climate One. We're going to put a microphone right here and invite your participation. Uh, it's often the best part of the program. So we're going to put the microphone right here. And if you're on this side of the house, please go through those doors back there and the line will form at our producer, Jane Ann, putting her hand up. So please don't walk in front of this camera right here. And then uh, we'll invite your one-part question or comment. Particularly for the young people in the audience, let's get you involved in this conversation. We're very happy that you're here. If we have to put the mic down, we can can, uh, do that. So let's... uh, Let's uh, have that part. Until then, I'll ask a question of um, how would you assess President Obama's environmental performance so far? Abigail? Yeah, I mean, I think right now President Obama's committed to a sort of an all-of-the-above energy policy. Um, and I think we, need, we could do more. I think we could be more ambitious, and especially in terms of the international negotiations. I think What's wrong with the ball of all? Uh, all of the above. You know, it, it, energy is complicated. We have nuclear. We have coal. That's not going to go away immediately. What's wrong with above all the above? I think we could do better. I think we could take a real position of leadership and say, we're going to choose the most clean, safe, renewable technologies. Um, we're really going to launch uh, a green economy uh, we're going to create green jobs. I think we could really show a position of leadership globally. Um, and Even if they cost more money? I think so. Darsha, how would you evaluate President Obama so far? Um, I take a slightly different stance. I think personally, like, 
and this is that I think contrary to like a lot of people like in the environmental movement, I take less offense, I guess is the word, to like a one above all policy. Like I really don't think coal and oil are good, but I'm like definitely more leaning towards nuclear and natural gas as they're like stop gaps, I think, especially in the case of natural gas. But at the same time, I'm, I'm Sorry, harsh. Sorry, you favor nuclear? Is that what you said? Or, well, I mean, not necessarily favor is a word, but I think it's, it's like... It's necessary. Yeah, like, it's like it's not as bad as people make it out to be when it's done right. Like, I think, I don't think, like, speaking as an environmentalist, I think that we need to, like, if done properly, we need to give every option, you know, it's fair chance. But, like, for example, like, big oil, for example, has a demonstrably bad track record, comparatively speaking. However, though, I do think that um, I'm not as harsh on Obama, mainly because... Uh, I'm not harsh on like in his ideals, like you know, in the sense that well, you know, he still wants green. I think that, but his timetable is a little too uh, long term for my liking. I think that he's trying to be too nice to the people who, uh, to the well, mainly the GOP, pretty much. And um, while that's perfectly good, like in an ideal world, uh, world, right, we'd have like lots of comp, like or I guess some amount of compromise, and things would still get done. But in this current political climate, clearly, um, compromise really gets nothing done. It seems, to be honest, it's kind of sad that that it's reached this stage. Therefore, I'm a little bit sad that he's too willing to compromise to the other side, and, you know, therefore, anything that gets passed is really a watered-down or, like, you know, a very watered-down and ineffectual, like, you know, compromise, really. Because it's like, well, we're not going to really do that much with regards to renewable energy, for example, and he's caving in too much, I really feel. That's the thing. Like, we need to have some, you know, hard limits as to show we're actually serious about this. Tanya, President Obama. I mean, I agree with uh, the other two speakers. I think we can, as the U.S., we have so much power and so many resources. We can really lead the way and be more ambitious and really change things around. Um, okay. But at the same time, he doesn't have, you know, all the power. So I'm understanding of that. Let's have our uh, first audience question. Uh, yes, sir. Welcome to Climate One. Yeah. Okay. Could you talk in the microphone? Thank you. So, what can younger kids uh, like under ten do to stop climate change mm-hmm. and solve the problem? Well, I work with I work with students under the age of ten, and um, they are very much involved. And you, as little kids, I mean, you can uh, demand stuff from us. You know, us who are in high school or older or adults. You know, if you see something, you know, you can tell us about it. You know, hey, I want to do this. I want to do that. You know, and we'll listen to you. And, you know, someone who works with little kids, you know, all of you have so many interesting questions and you're so outgoing and so uh, wanting to learn so many things that you have so much power in you and you can do so much. But you need to start speaking out when you start, when you don't see things that you like. You know, speak out, tell people around you about it, and that's one. That's a start. Like that's where something you can start doing now. Um, do you do some things already? Uh, let me think of it, cause I have a really hard life, so I have to remember. Okay. Uh, All right, we'll get back to it. Any any other thoughts for what really young kids can do? Um, Darsha. First off, what's your name? I mean, we gotta know. Okay, Kai. Hmm? Kai. K A I. Okay. Kai. Hmm. How old are, How old are you, Kai? Uh, six and three quarter of my birthday is in uh, two weeks. Okay. <laughs> so, Darsha? Man, I feel like I was a really bad six-year-old Thanks, by the way. So, um, I think that, um, like Tanya said, you have, like, you should um, tell, like, you know, uh, pe- if you're interested in something, right, you should tell uh, people who are older than you who, I guess, have more resources and ability. But at the same time, like, j- just as a full, like, I agree with everything that's been said, but as a full warning, a lot of, uh, I guess, there will be no adult or like, people older than you who dismiss you just because of how young you are, right? But, like, ignore them. Just like, like, I, just like, like oh, oh, you just keep talking. Like, I don't, you just have to act like, oh, well, it's, you know, you just do not, those people, like, it doesn't matter who doesn't listen to you. If one person listens and helps, it's totally worth it. So people, like, ignoring you, oh, it's just a kid, be like, well, I don't know what six-year-olds do. I, it's been a long time since I've been six, so I forgot how, like, six-year-olds, like, say no. But just ignore them and move on because um, no, if you really, honestly, truly, passionately feel about something, like, no one can stop you. And don't let anyone who's older than you say, oh, you know, you're just six, you don't know. Ignore them. They're not important. The people that will listen to you and take you seriously are who matter. Okay. Thanks, Kai. Uh, let's have our, thank you, Kai. The, the youngest. I like you. You good man. 
<laughs> Youngest question ever. Hi, welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Wenli, and uh, I have a question for any of you who would like to answer. And I'm wondering, how uh, do your parents or your family respond to the uh, the path that you've chosen to take in terms of environmental activism? Um, and I'm just kind of curious to hear your stories of how your parents have responded. Tanya? Well, at first, my mom thought I was crazy. And she wanted to take me to a psychologist, actually, because <laughs> she, she couldn't understand, like, why her little girl who, you know, wore tons of makeup and who wore heels and, you know, dyed her hair all the time, like, all of a sudden wanted to be this activist and change the world. Um, so she thought some switch went off and wasn't really working. But then after, like, I kept on being persistent with the work that I was doing, um, she now she's really proud of me, and um, she asks for my advice all the time about products and food um, and medicine. Abigail Bohr, what did your parents think when you uh, disrupted an international negotiation? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, my father first heard about it when he was listening to NPR on the way to work. Um, and he sent me an email pretty quickly afterwards. He would have called, I think, but I was in South Africa. Um, and he sent me an email saying, Hi, I just wanted to make sure they got the name right um, and that it wasn't one of your friends. Um, and, I mean, I think it was really interesting for them to see how passionate I was about this. My parents have always thought that climate change is real, um, but that it's going to happen in the future and, like, the long future. Um, and so they realized that because I was working on this, and I had been working on it for a while, um, because I had done something so extreme that they, they sort of woke up, and they were saying, is this really something that we should be concerned about? Should we be thinking about this right now? Um, and so I think seeing my passion led them to really understand the issue a bit more. Interesting that it took your uh, being reported in the media to, for that to happen. <laughs> like you couldn't just tell them over dinner that it's right. real. Adarsha? Um, um, my parents are really, really supportive of me. Um, I think their biggest concern was that I was, I was, no, I am, like a very, very passionate and fiery individual. I'm, getting that, I'm getting that sense, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people did. And um, they're just always like, you know, well, man, rein it in, like, you know, like, measured stuff. But at the same time, I think later they just like, nod the air, you know, he's kind of crazy. He's energetic. I mean, he's going to do it anyways, whether we tell, like, whether we say you can't do it or not. So, like, you know. Free reign, essentially, like, you know, because I, I, this thought I learned for myself, like, you know, I, I guess, like, how best to express myself and, you know, get my point across. And um, they're really happy and proud of me. So I'm like, woo, yay, lucky me, I guess. All right. That's our next question. Yes, sir. Um, do you feel like all of the corporate America is really taking environmental issues seriously? And if not, is there something that we can do to change that? We have more answers. Abigail? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a lot of corporate America isn't taking environmental issues seriously. And if they are addressing it, sometimes it's greenwashed. Um, and so they'll use the word environmental or green um, as a ploy to get us interested in their product. Um, and we have this idea of consuming sustainability, right? And that we're buying green. Um, but maybe we need to look at our practices of should we buy, be buying you know, an extra recycled water bottle in the first place? Um, do we need seven new Nalgenes? Um, and so I think we, we need to hold our politicians accountable, I mean, our corporations accountable as well, um, and look where their money is going and how that's influencing us. Let's have our next uh, question. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Daniela. I'm actually on the ACE advisory board with the Darsha, so I'm glad I know this amazing person. <laughs> and my question is one that bothers me all the time. So we have an oil economy in our country, perhaps in our world, and there are hundreds if not thousands of people who are personally invested in keeping it this way. This is their livelihood, their business. They created the system. They want to keep it. How are you going to convince, or how are we going to convince them to transition to a clean energy economy? How is that going to happen? Systemic change. Yeah, a lot of people. Okay. Adarsha, take a crack at that. Uh, I guess I'm going to take a little more brute force approach to that question. I feel that, um, I guess this might be controversial, but um, 
a lot of those oil companies, a lot of the people invest in them, they will they will not budge until they see a more profitable option because that's like you know the nature of the company. They need to make a profit. So if at some point you know oil becomes less profitable and renewables become more profitable, whether that be you know oil like supplies going down or renewable like breakthroughs happening and they become you know more profitable, then oil com- companies will naturally switch. Until that point, though, they have a very vested interest, and like from a company standpoint, I guess it's understandable to you know keep the status quo and things like that. So the only way I really feel to like accelerate that rate of change is to really get. People, not just the youth. I mean, although the youth are like a very, very important component, like just get people in general motivated and you know trying to change the status quo. Because then the oil companies have like they have only a very, very, very few options. They can either you know get behind us or they can get out of our way, and it's as simple as that. I definitely think that um, holding them accountable for the environmental. Uh, problems they they cause, you know, because sometimes we look at their profits, but they're actually not cleaning up their mess, you know. And once they we start actually charging them for to clean up their mess, well, they'll we'll realize that actually a lot of their profits are gonna go to cleaning up the mess they made, uh, because even in the Gulf oil spill, like they don't even know like right now the magnitude and the amount of money that's going to go into cleaning this area and same can be said in brazil and ecuador and the richmond refinery like the amount environmental like damage they're creating they're not cleaning up and i feel like us holding them accountable to clean up their mess will like uh make them less profitable and maybe rethink the way that they're making their profits let's have our uh, next audience question uh hi my name is jeffrey uh, I had a question for all of you, um, like what to do um, when sort of your peers, you talk to your peers about your feelings about climate change and if they disagree or how you can sort of get them motivated about the topic and trying to help stop climate change. Yeah, I would say make it accessible and make it fun. Um, those are two reasons why I'm involved is because... Um, you know, carbon is, is sort of an amorphous issue, right? There's these things in the atmosphere and we're polluting, but it, we have to make it tangible. And I think whether that's through gardening or through recycling or different projects where we can really see it and we can see that our actions have a difference, right? Um, and they can make a change. And I also think making it fun and making it a party. And so making sure that we celebrate our successes um, and maintain good spirits about it so that it's not something that depresses us or drains us but it's something that we can really rally around and get excited about. There's a lot of doom and gloom sometimes mm-hmm. that leaks yeah. in, and that can be really paralyzing. Darsha, did you want to add to that? Um, I definitely think another, like, I totally agree. I, I think another way to think about it is you don't need to necessarily talk, I think this is true for anyone, you don't really necessarily need to talk about these things as climate change. I mean, a lot of the things that you do, like, you know, if we want to decrease our dependency on oil, for example, um, a lot of these things are more than just climate change. There are, can we make the world a better place, a healthier place for a lot of people? And if we sell it as that, it's like, wait, don't sell it as like, you know, do we want to, like, you know, lower our greenhouse gas emissions? You can sell it as, do you want to make the world a better place? And that may sound overly simplistic, but really that's what we're trying to do, make the world a better, healthier place. And if you sell it as that, more people are definitely going to be willing to, like, because who really wants to say, no, I don't want to make the world a better place? It just, like, sounds like, uh, what? So if you sell it as, like, that, I think people are a lot more accommodating towards it. I also think that... Um Relating it to issues uh, that they are personal to those people, you know, like climate change falls falls under this like super big umbrella, and there's so many connecting pieces to it. And finding what your friends are interested in, it, and then connecting it to climate change, you know. We're talking about uh, youth advocates at Climate One today. Our guests are Abigail Bora, student at Middlebury College. Tanya Pulido is a student at Contra Costa College. And Adarsha Shivakumar is a student at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our next audience question. Oh, hi, my name is Roberto, and my question is, how can I get other seventh graders and kids around my school get active and help the world become a better place and get them away from video games? Yes. <laughs> Solar-powered video games, maybe. Okay. So, I'm very sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the first things is to get outside. And, you know, part of that is um, having a community of people who are working on similar issues. And I don't know, maybe you can speak more about that and how you get people outside. Yeah, I mean, being outside is really fun. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of, like, cool activities. I play with my students that are really fun, um, and they really enjoy it. 
And I feel like one of the things that is very important is like, how do you make it hands on? You know, how do you make it not so much of a lecture and like, okay, I'm gonna tell you how we're gonna save the world, you know, but like, you know, create a worm bin or, you know, or plant something and watch it grow and do fun activities uh, with people. I yeah. think that's important. I, I think just like that, I don't want to think. Adarsha, sure. Uh, uh, I totally agree. And speaking as a guy who plays video games, I'm just, I was just a little like, oh, sad face. But um, I, I definitely think that the most important thing is really a hands-on, tangible impact, mainly because um, that's why I think school gardens, for example, are a really, really great way. Because it's like the idea that nine times out of ten, right, when you do your homework, you can't eat your homework. I mean, well, no, you can, but like it tastes either A, terrible, and B, that's a, you have bigger problems for eating your homework. But if you, like, plan a school garden, right, then if you take care of it, you can eat the results. And it's a lot more tangible and tastier, too, incidentally. But um, those kind of things, making sure that you can see the results, feel the results, eat the results, that sounds weird, uh, I think really go a long way to make people interested. Because, like, hey, look, guys, if you plant this garden, you, like, you know, you put in fertilizer, you put in work, you can later, you know, literally reap the benefits of it. And it does a lot to make people interested, especially, like, um, people in middle school. Next question, please. Hi there. Uh, my name is Kaveh. I'd like to ask uh, what you guys think it'll, it would take to get the U.S. involved uh, with the international community uh, on this issue, and especially what the role of the youth movement would be in, uh, in doing that. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. You want to get the U.S. more engaged internationally. Right. Abigail, you were in Durban. You, know, you are engaged, but tell us, yeah, respond to that question. Yeah, I mean, I think right now um, we've politicized climate change and environmental issues to be, uh, you know, liberals on the side of the environment and conservatives on the side of jobs. And we've divided it into environment versus economics. And I think we have to figure out a way to reframe it so that it's not, um, you know, so divided on party lines. Because I think we need both parties involved in the, in the solutions. Um, and so until we depoliticize environmental issues, we're not going to have any success in Congress. We're not going to be able to bring anything to the table internationally used to be that way back in the 1970s when the Clean Air Act was passed and the EPA was created. Uh, it was actually a lot was done by Republicans in a bipartisan way. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Thank you. My name is Rommel Fox, uh, Air Force Academy graduate and the CEO of WhoMentors.com Incorporated. I invest in different projects, and so my question to each one of you is, besides a reusable t- toothbrush made out of Yoplait or yogurt cups or reusable s- sports bottles, what sort of technology would you recommend that an organization like mine would like to invest in to assist in climate change? Adarsha? Um, I think a really, really big thing is, um, is a broad topic, is any technology really marketed towards developing and third world countries, specifically around the areas of, you know, um, uh, uh, clean, sto- clean burning stoves or uh, solar powered lamps and things like that, because in those countries, a really big problem is. I mean, we're talking like really, really poor people. I'm going to wait for that siren to finish. I think it's probably a good idea. Or not. Whatever. Um, in those areas of the world, the big issue is like, you know, where can I get, uh, can I get food? Can I get shelter? Can I get heat for my family? And a lot of those things are very, very dirty, not only for the family, but for the environment as well. Like kerosene is pretty dirty. It's expensive as well for family. So like if you could like invest in, for example, uh, clean burning kerosene lamps or preferably like solar lamps that last longer and are... Uh, overall cheaper for the family, that does a world of difference in those areas because not only does it, you know, um, have the immediate impact of, like, decreasing carbon emissions, increasing the family's health, but it also, like, gets those people to understand, like, the, the, the people in the developing countries where, you know, which are probably going to be the bigger source of carbon emissions in the future, it gets them to understand that, you know, you can have, like, economic advancement and still be clean at the same time. And that way, they don't have to undergo what we're going through. Uh, like a dichotomy, you can either choose between jobs or you can choose between, uh, you know, you can choose between money or you can choose between health and the environment. And you can teach those people at a very, very early stage that it's not either or. You can do both at the same time. Good one. Uh, let's have our next audience question. Hi, um, I'm also an undergraduate student, college student, and I was wondering if you guys um, had any understanding of where your college endowments were invested and whether or not um, there was any transparency with regards to your endowment, because I actually, full disclosure, I go to Middlebury with Abigail, um, and you know our endowment is a lot of money, it's $860 million, and we have no idea where it's invested currently, which means we could be invested in something like Exxon, which would be problematic and sort of contrary to our aims as a green college. And I was wondering if you guys at Contra Costa or Stanford knew where your endowments were invested, if there's any transparency on that issue. Adarsha? Um, 
Gonna be perfectly honest, I have no idea whatsoever if Stanford makes that knowledge available. Um, I really hope that like the institution I go to uh, like holds itself up to like I guess the standards that like we try to like I guess keep or the standards that we like you know talk about in the school. But um, I will definitely look into that. I'm not sure if this kind of stuff is made publicly available, but at the same time. I think that like you can even if you don't know those things, you can definitely put like we can definitely put a lot of pressure on the school to um, get in its endowments from other sources, especially because if enough people in the school and enough faculty say that look, um, the, like hypothetically, if we had an endowment from Exxon, it wouldn't be you know in keeping with our um, with our ethos and our you know the standards that we hold the rest of the community to, then there'll be a lot of pressure to like you know very quietly or explicitly shift away from those kind of endowments. Well, there's a a real and a somewhat uh, effective precedent for that, which was uh, the anti-apartheid movement in the 1980s. I was a student activist then and actually was connected with people at Stanford and elsewhere. We, we did find out where the college endowments were invested. Uh, the University of California system uh, divested from stocks in South Africa, which led to U.S. sanctions imposed by President Reagan, which had an influence on changing the regime in South Africa. So in that case, going after the college money as a, as a lever to affect U.S. policy, which affected a country overseas, um, certainly worked in, in that case somewhat. It was, uh, and, and we know what happened in South Africa. The government changed eventually. So we have to uh, wrap it up quickly. Last uh, closing points here. One thing you want to leave to uh, the young audience and people out there. Let's start with Tanya. Closing words. Closing words. Find something you're passionate about and do it responsibly. And take everything in consideration when you do it. Abigail Bohr? Yeah, I think be a part of decision-making and realize that you, your voice matters in this process. Um, I think holding politicians accountable um, is really important, as well as speaking up when something goes awry and you don't agree with something. Uh, you know, sometimes you have to stand from the back of the room, but you can also vote with your dollars, vote with your votes, um, and any action that you take um, will be hard. Adarsha? I agree with everything they both said. I think that if you're genuinely like committed to a cause, don't let anyone stop you. Like, don't let any of us. Don't like you know financial situations. Don't let anything stop you. Because like, think about it. if you don't do what you want to do, what you really think needs to be done, then maybe no one else will. So in a lot of ways, you have that kind of power and exercise it. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Adarsha Shivakumar, a student at Stanford University and a Brower Youth Award winner, Tanya Pulido, a Contra Costa College student and also a Brower Youth Award winner and a Green for All Fellow, and Abigail Bora, a student at military, mil, military, I don't know, you're not going to military school, uh, Middlebury College in Vermont and an advocate with sustainus.org. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today. Thank you. Do you need a walking